Hi, I'm Taylor Carmen. I am a professor of philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University, and I work on European philosophy, which includes phenomenology, existentialism, and hermeneutics, etc., etc. And I think about questions like, what is truth and the meaning of life? Uh, and I'm Eric Kaplan. Uh, I'm a television writer, uh, currently on strike, and I also have a PhD in philosophy. And you are somebody listening to this podcast, which is called Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them. And it's a podcast in which we pose unsettling and disturbing questions and reflect on them and talk about them and try to find a place of equanimity and courage if we can. But if we can't, we don't lie about it. We, we're honest. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we usually end up feeling better by the end of the episode, I've noticed. But the fix is not in, is what I'm trying to say. That's right. It's, yeah. it's not a rigged game, but yeah. um, we're usually pretty successful. Mm -hmm. And we are joined today by Liara Rue, who is a sex worker, writer, and organizer, and the author of a wonderful memoir called Whore of New York. And she's joining us to talk about the question, what would a better spirituality look like for the future? Oh, hi, Liara. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So you grew up with some religious education in your life. I didn't. I grew up with like no church, no religion. Mm -hmm. So I've got a very different relation to it. I don't know, Eric, if you've ever talked about, did you go to synagogue and that kind of thing when you were young? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. We were reformed Jews growing up. Uh, my mom had grown up Orthodox and I like she rebelled against it. Yeah. And my dad, I mean, my dad was pretty agnostic, although he did refuse to have um, potentially cursed African items in his office. Like before he would get an African item, he wanted to be clear that there were no curses connected to it. Um, and I think my mom, she was very into plants. And one time I asked her, do you think that plants are just machines or is there something more? And she said, I think there's something more. But that was about the size of it. Okay. So we have three pretty different backgrounds about this. And Liara, you talk about religion a little bit in your book. And have you had any thoughts about like, what should a religion, if not a religion, a spirituality, what ought it to look like? Right. Because you seem, you're, I would go so far as to say you're a victim of religious trauma, that the religion that was served up to you as a kid was horrible. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think um, even if I hear like, you know, the sort of evangelical Christian rock on the radio in like a taxi, I get a little like antsy. Uh, or if it's playing in a restaurant, I just can't be in that restaurant, honestly. Um, wow. And, like and before the, we move on from that, like, is there anything you picked up from that emphasis on, on Jesus that you still dig? I really... I I love Jesus himself, you know, if you just read the red text in the Bible, it's all pretty, pretty cool, pretty groovy. I mean, he was just like a weirdo hippie, you know, very into love, free love, uh, maybe a little gay, loved hanging out with sex workers, and probably was doing a lot of mushrooms, probably smoking weed if they had it. I mean, <laughs> you know. Oh, they had it. Yeah, Jesus was a chiller. Oh, did you guys know that... Um... <laughs> They looked at the ritual implements from the temple, and they found traces of cannabis in them. Oh, God so bless. there was definitely there was definitely <laughs> cannabis use in the in the Judaic context of the Middle East back then. Not surprising. Oh yeah, no. I had a philosophy professor, a very old wise guy, who said he thought that every culture in the world always has had mind altering drugs. That's like a cultural universal. Mm. So of one kind or other, and often with religious. I think the Greek, um, the Oracle at Delphi, don't they say that... She was breathing some kind of smoke coming up out of the ground. Fumes and hallucinating, which is why those prophecies end up so kind of crazy sounding. And 
all our favorite philosophers were initiated into the Eleusinian mysteries and they ate some kind of barley uh-huh. um, before they encountered um, various gods and goddesses. So makes sense. That perhaps it was ergot, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, some lysergic acid. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so interesting. So okay, so so you like Jesus, but you didn't like the religion that you were subjected to. So what was the what did the religion add to the Jesus stuff that made it bad and how can we fix it? Um, I mean, they added a lot of hell, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, fire and brimstone. You're you're in, like the original sin stuff. They really took a little bit too far. It was very Protestant. Like you are inherently evil. I mean, I remember my mom driving us to church and she sort of turned around and looked at us and she was like, you know, we were pretty young, like I was like nine or something. And she was like, you know, like, you're really lucky that God like has taken pity on you and will like forgive your sins because like, otherwise you'd be really like damned to hell. Like you're all like really bad inherently. Like you should know that. Um, And that wasn't her necessarily trying to be mean to us or something. That was just her being like, this is really important that we go to church and respect God because, you know, he's really, uh, doing something great for us. Which... Wow. And that made an impression on you. That wasn't the sort of thing like your parents say stuff and you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it that kind of stayed with you, that comment? Yeah, I think, you know, for better or for worse, I'm the type of person who like really takes everything people say pretty seriously and like mm-hmm. sort of investigating it and sitting with it. And so I think hearing a lot of that growing up, I was really, uh, when I was young, you know, I think you, you just take everything yeah. your parents say pretty seriously too, or at least I did. And yeah, it was really disturbing to think about. The only thing I remember my dad saying about religion was that his parents made him go to church when he was little and he hated it. So I grew up thinking, I wonder what was so bad about it. <laughs> yeah. But I was like, because I also was very into Jesus Christ Superstar. I remember I was like six when that was, came out and I thought that was the greatest album. And I was like into the Jesus, the the the, the movie version of Jesus and his disciples, because they really were hippies and rock stars and kind of. Can I push back on some of this Jesus stuff for a second? Mm. Mm-hmm. Like, if you forgive everybody, aren't they going to do it again? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point. But I think that's a very, like, um, American, like, carceral way of thinking about the world, you know? Like, in most places, they have this, like, system. Even in the U.S., we have a system of debt forgiveness. Like, I guess, for except for student loan debt now. But, like, in most cases after if you declare bankruptcy after seven years you know it disappears off your history i think the idea is maybe you know like holding people accountable but maybe not destroying their lives for something i think to me that that's what's really important about it and giving people space to change and i think it's important to think about the type of punishments that were normal um, back in jesus's day you know if a woman slept with like someone's husband you know she could be stoned to death and that's really the source of that very powerful passage in the Gospel of John, which I'm, I've am i been reading about the scholarship surrounding this, and uh, mm. apparently that's not original to the early text. It was added on later, so it's unlikely Jesus actually said it, which was one of my great disappointments, because it's one of the most beautiful mm. things where she's about to be stoned, and Jesus draws a line in the sand, which is the origin of that expression, and says, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone, and everybody creeps away and then he says to her i don't condemn you very powerful but it's in the background of that the women were getting stoned for that kind of thing the, yeah. the woman caught in adultery that's about so that's horrific yeah 
Well, okay, but let's abstract from the degree of severity of the punishment and also what the particular crime is. Um, but like, is there like an example of hurting other people, which we're all against that, <laughs> that we want to, we want to reduce it? Can, can we just get something like that on the table? Yeah, I think, you know, violence, like physical violence, that's non-consensual. Um, so it's like, you know, murder. And I think also just like non-consensual activity in general um, is, okay. you know, it can cause varying degrees of harm. So let, let's take a kind of a, I mean, actually this happened to a friend of mine, but it's, I was going to say it's a Colombo case, but it's also a thing that happened. So, so there is two people who are involved in a real estate fraud and one of them in order not to get caught murders the other one. And we find out about it. What should we do? Like we're building a new religion here on this podcast and, and hopefully people, you know, people with good marketing will listen to the podcast and, and get in gear, <laughs> but, but let's figure it out before we start marketing it. What should we do about this guy who, um, who murdered his business partner so as to not get caught and to, to continue in his, his shitty real estate scam business and make money? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean let, like, let's get real here. Yeah, I mean, I think something like that is pretty objectively horrible, okay. you know, and I think that's the type of thing where you can consider really wanting to ostracize someone from society. You know, there's not very much justification for that kind of behavior. It's just greedy and selfish. Right. And so I think. And there's got to be some justice. There's got to be some recourse. I mean. But but the, but the, where does the Jesus stuff come in then? Well, Eric, I mean, I think in a way you're attacking a straw man. Okay. Because one Jesus is the ultimate pacifist, all forgiving, turn the other cheek, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and no fighting or anything. But remember, even the red text in the in the Bible, as you were saying, I remember, I don't know why. Oh, it's my grandparents who had the Bible. That's what it was. My parents didn't have a Bible. But when we go to my grandparents, there was a Bible there. And I would look at it and read it. And yeah, if you want to get right to the fortune cookie material that uh, Jesus said comes from straight from Jesus's mouth, you go to the red text. But a lot of what he does say is that the, when the new kingdom is coming, some of us will be resurrected from the dead and live forever. And others will go to the pit. But Liari doesn't like that, Jesus. So I want to, but I want to engage. Okay, all right. Well, I think there's a big difference. I don't think he's necessarily talking about hell, you know, but he's talking no, he's not, about actually. ostracization yeah. from society, and I yeah. think it's like, a, which is a, a kind of hell potentially, you know, you know, like if someone's a serial killer, we're not going to let them run loose and kill whoever they want. Like obviously, that's something that's unacceptable. And I mean, even Jesus, you know, he goes into the temple and he's like cursing out the Pharisees. He's like, he gets violent. He's like tossing things around, like saying like anyone who's trying to make money from religion is like super evil, you know. Um, Overturning the tables. Yeah. The scholars nowadays refer to that as the temple tantrum. That's <laughs> 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 so good. <laughs> and to the extent yeah. that I have a, a personal like family religion, I'm a Pharisee, mm. which is the name for the rabbinic Jews of the time. You and St. Paul. Oh, really? Okay. He um, was a Pharisee. He started so out as one. Yeah. That's why I'm trying to figure this out, because it's it's a little bit like Christianity almost seems like this sort of modern Bailey fallacy, that when you come in the door, they say, we're going to forgive everybody. And you're like, well, that sounds pretty good. And then it's like, well, we're <laughs> not going to forgive this guy who kills his partner in a real estate scam. And it's like, well, mm. well, now you're gonna have you're gonna have to become a Pharisee. You're gonna have to figure out what you do about it and how you convict him. And like, there's gonna have to be laws. 
and and some sort of i'm giving you the i don't even know if i 100 believe this but i'm giving you the kind of rabbinic jewish yeah criticism of christianity yeah that that makes sense i think it's one of those things too where the community needs to come together and i think a part of the issue um w that we have like with these modern day communities is that the lawmaking bodies um and the judicial system is often so removed from like actual community um that that there's real issues with like how how to actually deal with these problems and because these aren't people who are maybe known to the judges mm -hmm. you know it used to be the type of thing where someone would go before the judges and they kind of knew who they were already and they're like okay we know you've been running the scam we know you're a little sketchy mm. you know although I, w I would rather the judge not convict me just because he personally thinks i'm a creep <laughs> like i'd like them to be able to prove it no yeah no i it's complicated it's complicated and i don't think um it's it's one of those things where if you are a sociopath it's very easy to figure out ways to game different types of systems mm -hmm. no matter what the system is there's always some way to like accumulate power and manipulate people you know so... right right that's true and we'll be right back and we'll talk more about this stuff I still think there's a little bit of a straw man here because even the most forgiving kind of ethic, which you can associate with the hippy dippy Jesus as much as you like, there's always a commitment to justice of some kind. Because mm. the whole what he was talking about was justice after all. He was defending the poor, the weak, the prostitute, the sick, the meek against oppressive forces who he was even imagining revenge against. But you know, can bracket that for a minute. But the whole point is that even when Christianity in its most benevolent possible form was telling you God can forgive you. I mean, forgiveness is an option. It's not like you get your forgiveness at the door coming in and then uh -huh, anything uh -huh. goes. It's more like he's all merciful, which means with some repentance, with some <laughs> sort of indication that you're worthy of forgiveness, he will for he could forgive anything in principle. It's uh -huh. never too late. So it's still encouragement yeah. to sort of uh -huh. um, to be good after all, no? Yeah. I And I really... Yeah. Um... I, I think uh, there is really something to that, you know, the idea that if we punish people for minor wrongs, they might just go on. It's not going to fix yeah. the issue, you know, it, rather than figuring out a punishment focused system, it's better to figure out how do we make the lives of the community in general better, you know, versus like thinking of ways to like hurt the person who's hurt others. It's just a reframing of the problem. And it acclimates people to sort of petty punishments for petty offenses, which means they just get the, to thinking, well, this is normal, and then they'll apply it to more serious things. Well, you know, it's too bad if you get caught. And in a way, that, that, that kind of petty penalizing system robs the whole thing of the moral seriousness, which it ought to have, which is, you know, something well, let's, weightier. Let, let's, yeah. let's use our imaginations a little bit. If we're, if we're building um, a new... A new um are you okay liara 
Because you just yeah. you just touched your head, and I I feel so bad about your headaches about the trigeminal. <laughs> um, oh, oh, the yeah. headaches have been the headaches have been a lot better. Oh, okay, Thank good, you. good. No, I, that was a real. No, this is um, just me being a serious thinker. No, you're being you're being thoughtful. You're not in pain. Okay, it's a fine line between serious thought and headache. Oh, that's I can fair enough. Attest to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I guess maybe other people might call me a headache, but you I'm know the thinker, the thinker, the Rodin statue. Yeah. That was a yeah, yeah, that was yeah, a yeah. migraine attack, actually. A little <laughs> little known fact about that. Okay, uh, but <laughs> what I will I will ask is, um, like, let's let's be imaginative, and think about um, what we'd like to do to integrate people back into the community if they've done something less than ideal, less than perfect, perfectly loving, like, like what should it be? What sort of, what sort of um, rituals or, or practices would be good? Um, I mean, let's, let's, let, I mean, let's start, let, let's, let's together. Let's, I, I don't want to talk about that real estate guy. Cause he feels like a little bit of a, <laughs> of a, of a flat character. Like none of us really <laughs> are like that. So let's think of a, of a example of somebody who we would think maybe needs some kind of spiritual brush up. Yeah. <laughs> Tune up. Um, <laughs> I mean, maybe we could do someone even like Harvey Weinstein, mm. you know, like mm. pretty mm. bad, but also maybe someone who could be like could someone like him be real rehabilitated we're creating a religion and what rule has he broken by um (laughs) by having sex with a bunch of women in exchange for furthering their careers and sometimes kind of bullying and forcing them into it what's how do we formulate that rule how many commandments did he break doing that i, I have to look them up again <laughs> well we're we're this is we're starting with a blank slate so let's come I up know, with i'm some just new, wondering i'm yeah, just yeah. wondering about the new you know, previous attempts there's been previous attempts at this creating a religion thing and that we shouldn't that was coveting never mind i'll think about it while you think about it. like what, <laughs> well what, some what, of them what, weren't married so you know yeah um, i see that's maybe true, but, maybe biblically like what he did even would have been you know, maybe even kosher, you know? Yeah, that's the like, problem. Uh, yeah. Good maybe point. the issue is that he didn't marry them after. Yeah. <laughs> You're also not supposed to covet your neighbor's slaves, male or female. Well, I'm not saying okay. they were slaves, but the, but, the, um, the trouble you know, is it wasn't just the wife. The whole, yeah. the whole capitalist enterprise is based on coveting. So, but we think that Harvey Weinstein... We better just forget that one. Yeah. We think Harvey Coveting, Weinstein okay. was significantly worse than like Bob Iger, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So what rule did he break? Like if we're going to kind of we like we don't like Harvey Weinstein. How can we we're going to put something in some stone and put it up uh, over people's doors? What's the what's the thing that we're going to put in stone, do you think? Um, so for me, it's really the violation of consent. Um, mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the major issue and the abuse of power over others. Oh, um, I was thinking of the power thing. That's what's really horrible about it, isn't it? Now, is is the consent thing? possible under capitalism like what does it really mean like if he said you know i'm gonna fire you if you don't sleep with me and then the victim said okay like he could argue that he evades our law because he says there was consent i said yes and she said okay but did he or is there a better way to formulate that well i think getting to the root of this Mm -hmm. is really important and i think Probably a large part of why he wants to have sex with these people is because um, of a power thing. And it might, I would guess that he has some insecurities of, around being lovable, probably. Um, because otherwise, it's like, why is he going mm. to such lengths to pressure people into having sex with him? Mm-hmm. You know, if mm. he was feeling more secure in himself, I'm sure there would have been plenty of people who would 
very willingly sleep with him consensually just to further their careers. You know, they would just be like, all right, great. This is a great deal for me. I'm happy to do this. You know, um, why was he specifically seeking out people who um, very clearly were not okay with it? You know, and I think um, he might have just been angry at them, angry at them for being beautiful and not wanting to sleep with him. And so I think figuring out how to help people heal from things like this, it's, you know, much harder. In, in, in a lot of ways, I think it's much harder than just sending someone to jail. If you just send them to jail, you, you can say, okay, we've removed the problem. We don't have to think about them anymore. Um, we can just send them to rot. But I think figuring out a way to like center the person that they've harmed, you know, center the victim um, and say like, okay, like what do we need to make you feel safe, make you feel okay? And then also, how do we heal this person so that they don't go around doing this again and again? And I think to me, that's the, the interesting challenge. It would be great if there's some way you could cultivate empathy, because it seemed like that's what he was lacking. I don't know very much about his case, to be honest. But I mean, mm. are, are people at some point just unredeemable? Like they're too old, they take their privilege for granted so much that it's going to be really hard to, at that maybe age to sort of get him to see what's really going on and, and sympathize a little with people. I guess what I'm saying is um, it would be nice to think there would be a way. Maybe there's, I hate to say re-education because that has bad associations, but I'm thinking along your lines. Like it would be great to be able to imagine rather than just throwing him in prison to say, let's help you think about this from the other person's point of view. So how would we how would we do it? I think Liara is 100% right. That this man feels unloved and unworthy of love and angry, and that has turned him into a dangerous character. Now, the way to deal with his dangerousness, I think is a little philosophically less interesting, like put a shock collar on him or lock him in a <laughs> room or something. Like a, <laughs> some the people who handle that kind of thing probably can figure out how to do it once we've figured out who he is and convicted him. But we're being spiritual here. Like spiritually, what do you do with somebody who's got that kind of deep narcissistic wound? I, I think Jung is really interesting here. And like his concept of like the shadow self and like all, all of us maybe can relate in some ways to him, you know? And I think that's why some people have such an angry, like violent response to him is because they don't want to think about these parts of themselves these parts of themselves that might react similarly. But, you know, maybe all of us have had moments where we feel really insecure and we lash out and maybe we hurt someone because we aren't feeling worthy, we're not feeling taken care of, and we want to flex a little bit or, or figure out some way to have power over someone. You know, I think it's unfortunately like a pretty common way of coping with that, that sensation. And I think the more we understand this about ourselves, the more we're able to look at ourselves and say like, oh, you know, like this reaction that he's having, he's maybe taken it to a really extreme level. But I think if most people are able to look at ourselves like with an honest view, like we've all hurt people, you know, and so much of it stems from like various insecurities or various neuroses or trauma. And I think if we're able to accept that about ourselves, it becomes easier for us to see and accept that in other people without necessarily being like, oh, they're horrible and they need to be expelled from society. 
Here's a question. I don't know if this takes us in the wrong direction or a different direction, but I remember I think Foucault said that sex crimes like rape shouldn't really be understood in terms of sex. Yeah. Because they're they're violence. Mm. And to think of them as just an extension of sexual activity is to give too much weight to the idea of sexuality. I remember hearing something like that when I was quite young. My dad was a psychologist and it stuck in my mind because my dad said, oh, that's ridiculous. Like, of course, everybody knows it's all about sex. Like, that was self-evident. And it took many years before I realized, oh, it was Foucault maybe who said that. And then I thought he was really right because understanding sexuality doesn't help you understand people like Harvey Weinstein, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think I really like Foucault's system of thinking about sex and power. And I think um, Gail Rubin is another person who uh, has written a lot about sex and especially monetary and power exchanges, um, and especially how women are kind of used as currency. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see that, with, I mean, it, it's really interesting to apply her framework to the way Weinstein was treating women, because not only was he using them as sort of like an ego boost, he's like, oh, I can get this beautiful woman and sort of build himself up. But he can also uh, use them in his movies and really profit off of them and their image Uh Um, Uh and the fact that other people are sexually attracted to them. And she wrote this really great paper in the 70s called The Traffic in Women that really explores how women have historically been used as a kind of currency, Um, Mm -hmm. even outside of, you know, obviously there's sex work where sex is used in a commercial way, um, but women in general historically... Right. It goes way beyond just the sex because they're products, mm. they're traded, they're bought, they're sold for the making of the films and the Hollywood culture. But it's the violence that's more sort of essential to what's going on with that than, than the sex. Yeah, and power and being able to profit. So we need to yeah. we need to wean people away from power and violence. <laughs> I know that sounds <laughs> like that might be difficult, but that's that's <laughs> if you're starting a new religion, you have to set your sights pretty high. Yeah. So. I guess I'm wondering whether, um, like, violence and and sexual exploitation have a common root. Mm. I'm not sure quite what it is, but what do you think? I'm not going to say what I think, but I like because I'm still formulating it. But is it possible that Foucault wasn't a hundred percent right? That actually the desire to do violence to someone and the desire to sexually exploit that person are sort of two as two sides of the same coin. I mean. You could definitely make that argument. A lot of my friends um, that are trans women really say that often the violence that they experience is because someone experiences sexual attraction to them, is angry about it, and then Mm -hmm. decides to hurt them. Um, But I do think that in a lot of cases, you know, like people will rape someone not necessarily because they're horny. You know, they could go jerk off or they could hire a sex worker, you know, or do a billion other things if they just want to have sex, you know? Um, It's often more about putting someone down and humiliating someone. And I think it's the same thing with like catcalling someone on the street. It's about putting someone down, putting someone beneath you, objectifying them and saying basically like, this is all you're good for. And I, I think that's maybe sex is entwined with it, you know? Maybe this is how someone gets off. But I think, um, you know, someone can do something like that and not necessarily be getting off mm-hmm. on sexually, just be getting off on like a power trip, making themselves feel like a big man. Right. I think I know what Foucault would say. I think I have an inkling of what Foucault would say, which is that when you say sexual exploitation, 
what you have to hear is that there's exploitation of lots of different kinds. There's economic exploitation and professional and emotional and whatever. You can add sexual exploitation to that list, and that makes perfect sense. But if you start with an idea of sex or sexuality, it's not as if that concept naturally leads you to this idea that sex has a tendency towards exploitation. Mm. In other words, the concept of sexuality isn't robust enough to give you a freestanding notion of sexual exploitation that stands alone alongside, like, violence. Like, these might have something in common other than that it's exploitation. So that's just to put in my mm -hmm. conceptual sort of proposal here, which is that it's exploitation that's doing all the work in that notion. And think of how many different things are called sexual, right? I mean, yeah, it can be violent, but I think sex should be thought of, in sexual violence, sex should be thought of as, like, as a tool for violence. And people use all kinds of tools for violence, for hurting each other. So is the primal sin the main thing we want to stop with our new religion, putting people down, like thinking you're better than other people? I mean, to me... It it's just about causing harm, you know, and I think that can that can take many, many forms. I guess to bring the Campania and the Stimmung into it, this idea, I think, that a lot of people will cause these harms too because they're disconnected from themselves and what they want to need, and they're disconnected from their bodies, and that I think today's uh, society really forces people to disconnect from their bodies. I think... Uh, a lot of people are really, they're not able to empathize with people because they're not even able to be present with themselves. And I think a part of undoing this is maybe stepping back from language even a little bit and just checking in with how you feel about it. You know, I think part of the issue with making these rules and saying like, oh, this is okay, this isn't okay. And like, this is why it's not okay. And like, all of that is like, if we step back from it, and we just like, check in with our feelings, you know, like, it, it's like um, the difference between, you know, reading about someone kicking a dog and we're like, oh, what punishment should they have? Like, how should we legislate this, you know, versus just watching a video of someone kicking a dog and you're just like, like you feel it viscerally in your body. And I think focusing more on that feeling is maybe maybe more of the way to, to think about these issues, too, and encouraging people to to be present with those feelings as opposed to I think when you turn turn these things into words and turn them into philosophical concepts. I know this is a philosophy podcast, but I think that can really damage our ability to to actually deal with these issues in the most helpful way. Can you say something about this thing you referred to, the Campania? Oh, Campania? What is, what is that? So Federico Campania is this philosopher. He's Italian, and he wrote this really great book called Technic and Magic, which... I've shown it to a couple of my friends who are super into German philosophy, oh. and they say, oh, maybe it's not the most rigorous, but I feel like that's almost maybe the beauty of it, is that it's writing about how so many of our attempts to define things really specifically with language can be really destructive, and that when we open ourselves up to the idea that life has something to it beyond just what can be defined, which uh, Campania calls the ineffable, mm -hmm. then we are really able to relate to the world in a way that makes us much happier. And this is, again, something that I've talked a lot about with my friends who are very literal, very into sort of this rigid German philosophy where everything kind of is beautifully ordered, yeah. but a lot of them yeah. are really suicidal, very sad people, you know, like, ah, <laughs> I think... Ah. Uh, Rationalism as a consolation for, for sorrow. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. and I think leaving space for 
life to breathe a little bit um, and for there to be a little magic as corny as it sounds maybe um, it adds a lot of beauty into life and it also leaves space for sympathy and for for people to change you know miracles Um, I think the concept of a miracle is really wonderful something that you, you can't have a miracle happen if you don't think they're real it's part of what he writes about is when everything is super scientific and extremely defined there's no like even if something that does happen that's outside of what's possible mm-hmm. by definition mm-hmm. um it's often swept away or ignored or given a rational explanation when maybe sometimes there are things that happen that aren't well i should read this book because this sounds a lot like two of our past episodes one of them was uh, as being unintelligible and the other one was is it better to be deep than shallow and uh so there's uh, a lot of the ineffable there. Mm-hmm. So if we wanted to help people cultivate magic and miracles, like how would we do it? Um, I think a part of it is just changing ourselves. And I think having everything be so heavily based on words can really be damaging. I mean, there's been a lot of focus on like the sort of left brain, right brain modes of thinking and relating to the world. And I think both images and bodily sensations really encourage a different way of thinking about things. Like I think using words and defining everything encourages a certain level of rigidity. You know, not to not to keep harping on Jesus, but, you know, he used to perform these miracles and these healings. And the word in the Greek for these miracles or wonders or whatever is uh, signs. Mm. And uh, it's I can't remember exactly the form of the Greek word, but it's like connected to semiotics, like a, a sign. And so what was the point of doing these miracles, or, you know, his healings and so on? Because uh, he would always tell the disciples, don't tell anybody this happened. And that may just be a clever trick of like, if word gets out surreptitiously, it creates a sense of excitement and everything. But it's almost like these had better not just be cheap magic tricks, right? They're supposed mm. to be signs of something else. They're supposed to like be pointing to something else. And Kierkegaard makes a point about, what about Lazarus? Lazarus gets raised from the dead. That's great. But then what? He still has to die, right? (laughs) So what was the Mm. point? (laughs) So um, it can be a cheap trick if it's not a sign of something else. And it looks like a nonverbal, just like you were saying, non-rational, not linguistic, not rationalized demonstration or proof of anything. It looks like it's pointing you to something else. So just to bring Jesus into the picture again. So have either of you seen any, like, cool images that help to do this i mean i'm i'm not going to defend language it's obviously pretty sucky <laughs> very useful I, let's let's not be too harsh ah, on language no 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 i think it, i think it blows yeah i mean i think we all uh our trade is all word based so none of us can be too hard on it really right in the beginning was the word don't forget that I think words are are pretty bad. I mean, they're pretty, pretty lacking in so many ways. But like you were, Liara, you were talking about images. Is it, Have you found like any good magical images that you think are bringing it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I've always been, been super into images. I think, um, you know, there's a lot of really great goddess worship ones throughout history. Or just like, you know, really beautiful paintings throughout history. They inspire a certain level of, of reverence. Even the Catholic Church, you know, has maybe almost focused more on iconography than on words themselves. Like a lot of the people attending Mass couldn't even really understand Latin. And so it was really just about the experience of it. Incense, 
the sounds, the music. Isn't it kind of ironic that Christianity, which grows out of Judaism, and the one of the commandments was have no graven images of nothing in the sky, nothing in the land, nothing in the water. God was saying no images because he didn't want pagan deities competing with him, right? I'm the jealous God. It's either the second commandment or part of the first. Mm-hmm. Uh, no graven images because I don't want you worshiping anything other than me and I'm invisible like you can't see me. It then turns into, just as you were saying, uh, a religion for which the image of the crucifixion is absolutely central and constantly repeated and ubiquitous in medieval and Renaissance art. You can't get away from it. That and the Virgin Mary, these are pictures that are doing something that presumably words can't quite do. Um, Ironic that the visual element is so absolutely strong in spite of the initial commandment against graven images. Yeah. Well, if we were going to build like a really cool statue of the goddess for people to worship, what would you like it to look like? Do you want it to be like 50 feet high or how should we do it if we're building this new this new religion? And and in the back of my mind, I'm kind of hoping it'll be a religion that can save Harvey's soul. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I, maybe I'm, a, I'm still a bit of like a techno optimist, um, but I do think one of the things that's really cool about computers and about technologies that we're able to transmit images with such ease now. Mm -hmm. Uh, The printing press kind of did this for words, you know, and at first the internet was very language-based, but now with Instagram and everything else, we're able to just have these images that spread like crazy. You know, we see memes that are really great for sharing ideas and you know, I think the Black Lives Matter movement was really sparked in part by these really powerful videos of police brutality. It's like mm. the same thing with the war in Vietnam, I think, where because people saw for the first time what war looked like on TV, I think the U.S. military now has gotten better at sanitizing these images and turning them into these cinematic capture of what's happening on the ground. But I think the Vietnam War, it was really just like raw and people saw that these civilians were just being slaughtered and the soldiers were suffering. Um, and I think it caused this uproar. And I think that's the real power of like images and videos mm-hmm. being able to hit people in the gut, you know, cause they're, it's like, they're there, like they can see it happening and they can really relate to the people that are experiencing this. Hmm. Why don't we take our second break? And I say second, cause we didn't take a first break, but I can edit it in. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that was a great break. That was one of our <laughs> finest breaks, I think, so far. So maybe, maybe instead of having like a, a a statue of like an idealized goddess, we should have screens everywhere that have sort of the goddess of the day, and it's like some woman who's a refugee, uh, s- stuck in the sea in the Mediterranean, and and everyone would do their ritual to her and light flowers to her, like maybe something like that. Um, or maybe, um, yeah, maybe that could be a thing. I mean, I think some Instagram accounts are essentially already doing that. You know, they'll post a photo of someone and be like, donate money. But is, so is there a ritual to this? 
do you think in our religion like we have these images how do we interact with them in a way to have it like you say hit you in the gut because because the images i do think images are getting devalued also because there's so many of them i i mean my personal opinion is that i don't want there to necessarily be a centralized religion uh -huh. i just want people to kind of I, I mean, what's really, really cool to me is that everyone can make their own images. So everyone can kind of, especially with, I mean, AI is so interesting in part because people are able to just sort of generate whatever they want. And a lot of these tools that we have now um, allow people who maybe don't have the time necessarily to like work on the craft of image making um, to really construct their own beautiful images mm -hmm. um, and I think that to me is really important because I think in the past you know everyone was kind of doing their cave drawings you know like maybe you know there are certain people that are more skilled at drawing or something but there wasn't necessarily this idea that you had to cleave to a certain ideology or attend a certain school get certain training to be like like uh certified mm -hmm. as like an acceptable image or word maker you mm -hmm. know it's kind of democratizing it right right, right. <laughs> we set out to imagine a new spirituality and we also like threw the word religion in there so maybe we can stick with a spirituality that needn't be what institutionalized i mean now let's say it's 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 not institutionalized let's say it's just entirely on the ground like yeah. it's like grass and it's not like a tree Mm. And somebody comes to you and says, I did something and I feel really bad and I want to get right with the mystery that sustains all of us. What ought I to do? Um, I mean, that's the a ritual of contrition. You could also you could flip it in a more optimistic scenario and talk about a ritual of gratitude. I just had my my, my child lived. I thought he was in the hospital. He got better. And I want to connect. I want to somehow connect to something deeper than words what what should that person or those, those i mentioned two people what should either of them do i think um another thing that's cool about the internet is like uh you know you can crowdsource these things like mm -hmm. a lot of people post on reddit even there's like uh i don't know if you guys have seen the like relationship advice thing that kind of blew up over the pandemic but people were basically posting on reddit they were like oh this like i'm having this crazy issue right now how do i solve it mm -hmm. like mm-hmm and they could kind of go through, get a lot of different advice and kind of pick and choose. Or there was one called Am I the Asshole where people could post, you know, their side of the story, mm -hmm. of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but a lot of people would post their side of the story and people would be like, yeah, you're a fucking dickhead, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> which is it, it can be good. You know, it's like this if it's this guy who's like super self-absorbed and he's like, oh, like. You know, I work a job and I come home and my wife has like left her socks on the ground and I like screamed at her for two hours like and she said that I was, you know, going too far, like, am I the asshole? <laughs> and suddenly I'm the or bad she guy. Just like a bad wife. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then, you know, people like that, they would be like, Yeah, like, come on, man. Like <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> Maybe that could help. That could help the guy. Maybe he needs And it's to anonymous it. too, which I think is super oh. powerful. You know, it's not like someone has to go out there and kind of open themselves up to judgment mm -hmm. and people know who it is. It's like they can, mm -hmm. it's not about whether they're like an annoying person, you know, it's just about the situation itself, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which I think can be pretty powerful too. Hmm. 
This is good to hear this techno-optimism, because usually most of what I hear, and I guess most of what I think about internet and social media is that it's hellish and superficializing everything, and the anonymity can be kind of dangerous, too, because it's like uh, road rage, where people are stuck in their little cars and they can scream and get into some fantasy about their enemies and the people they hate. But um, I suppose it has these more positive uh, possibilities built into it. Yeah, I think for me, imagining, like really beautiful alternatives and ways of using these things is really important. I think obviously the walled garden Mm -hmm. nature of social media results in like these kind of institutions where, you know, there is this centralized power that can become really restrictive. I think, I mean, I grew up on like an older internet where there were like forums where you could join and like you could easily be booted, you know, if you were trolling or just like not behaving according to the rules of that like little particular micro society you would be removed pretty immediately but it was really cool to see you know people who came together for like a common interest and who did form these sort of self-regulating societies that really really did take care of each other i just had a very optimistic sort of thought which hadn't ever occurred to me until just now it must maybe i'm just stating the obvious but you know gender politics has changed really quickly really recently i mean being the age i am i can attest that like the last 15 or 20 years have been really super fast now is it just a coincidence that that coincides with the internet i bet it isn't at all so there's a way in which a very popular means of communication representation has made something possible that was unthinkable in the 1970s or 80s. yeah no and i i think it's because of the image-based nature of things Mm, um mm, And just people's ability to access this information anonymously and see, like, I think for a lot of men, you know, maybe they didn't realize that catcalling women felt shitty, you know, they're just like, ah, she's beautiful, I gotta tell Mm -hmm. her, like, I would love it if a woman, like, screamed at me that I'm a hot piece of ass, you know, they don't necessarily understand what it's like to have someone larger than you, like, say this kind of thing to you, Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. and the, you know, the violence that women experience, and so being able to read about it and like research it in the comfort of their own home without necessarily being they're able to think about it more abstractly they have more distance it's not like some woman coming to them and being like you specifically you are a bad person Mm -hmm. but a woman saying when this happens to me it makes me feel this type of way you know and seeing video documentation of like women's experience moving through the world it can really allow people to empathize reflect without feeling like they're you know, being shamed directly. So maybe the internet is making possible this new spirituality religion in the way that the printing press made Protestantism possible. Now you can print Bibles and everybody can read the Bible for themselves and not listen to the Pope. (laughs) It's a new means of communication that creates a new spirituality. Yeah. What do you think of that, Eric? I like that. I'm curious. I mean, I think it's true. I'm curious about these micro communities because some of them must be good and some of them must be not as good. Mm. And what are your what are your thoughts, Liara, about how to have these micro online communities that make us open to love and less, you know, vicious to each other? Yeah, I mean, I think they're really beautiful examples of people being able to, to self-regulate. You know, obviously mm-hmm. there are ones like Nazism was really able to flourish in like super corners in these sort of like clandestine environments or like obviously things like child pornography can spread very easily in these spaces too unfortunately but i do think there's something to be said for giving people space where they can explore just one aspect of their personality like on social media you're kind of encouraged to have a brand and say 
this is everything, this is all of who I am, you know, versus like having different forums that you visit to talk about maybe philosophy or photography, you know, Mm -hmm. it's more, it's more natural, I think, as a human way of relating. Mm -hmm. Well, are we winding down to our um, equanimity and uh, courage, Eric? You feel better? Well, I don't feel like using language. I I think a good criticism was made of language earlier in the talk. (laughs) I feel like like stopping. We should meditate Mm -hmm. on some uh, edifying and enlightening and inspiring Mm -hmm. images. (laughs) Thank you, Leara, for being our guest and helping us through this terrifying question about a new spirituality. Yes, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Honor to be here. Have a good rest See of the week. See you next week, everybody, or listen to you next right. week, or listen, you listen to us, I guess is the way it works. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carmen. It's produced by Amanda Eberhardt. The music and editing is by me, Taylor Carmen, and our cover art illustration is the work of Tony Millionaire. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as Terrifying Questions.